The title of this morning's message is Jesus' Authority Over All Other Powers. Jesus' Authority Over All Other Powers, Part 3. So we've seen Part 1 a month ago where Jesus demonstrated his authority over nature and the supernatural powers. Then Part 2 was the supernatural powers of demons. And today we see his power over death the power over dying. In other words, Jesus is going to demonstrate his authority to raise the dead unto life. Now, you might ask, isn't it Missions Month? We haven't forgotten about that. How does this passage connect to missions? Why, I believe by direct implication, and we'll come to this at the end, that the work of evangelism and missions is essentially trusting in God, asking God to save people, and what we're asking God to do and we're waiting on God to do is to perform a miracle of raising dead souls. We're praying for God to resurrect the dead. So we'll come back to this at the end, but if you have God's word, will you take it now and turn with me to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, it is a long passage. Uh, therefore, we will we'll take a look at this um, step by step and phrase by phrase rather than reading all of it in the beginning, which will take time, okay, away from the actual preaching. So, Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. Now, I want to make a note that today we are voting for our pastoral candidate, Gary Chan, for the Mandarin congregation, and during his candidate sermon, if you'll remember, a month ago, he preached this passage, but he covered specifically verses 25 to 34 on Jesus healing the woman who had nonstop internal bleeding. So today, I'm going to trace back and cover the context of that. I'm going to trace back and cover the the thrust of chapter 5, which is the whole story, and I'm not going to focus on Jesus healing the woman, but I'm going to focus on that event from the viewpoint of Jairus. Right, so point number one this morning before we begin to explain the text is trust in the sovereign person and power of Christ. That's the first thing we see. Trust in the sovereign person and the power of Christ. Notice verse 21. Let me read that to you. So when Jesus had crossed again, in the boat to the other side, back into Jewish territory. I'm adding that commentary for you. A great crowd gathered about him. He was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. Seeing Jesus, Jairus fell at his feet and implored Jesus earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Verse 24, and Jesus went with him. Stop there. So in verse 21, it sets the scene. There were crowds of people surrounding Jesus. And this is important because it makes Jairus' encounter with Jesus a public event. This is no secret meeting. And I'll explain in a moment why this is significant. But notice verse 22, what we read is that we're introduced to this man named Jairus. And it simply identifies him 
as one of the rulers of the synagogue. Now, what's the synagogue? The synagogue was a Jewish house of worship. It was a Jewish institution of worship. And if he's a ruler, it means that he was an administrator, a manager, a leader of this Jewish institution of worship. And like a manager, he oversaw the teachers, he oversaw the scribes, he oversaw the operations, and he managed the religious activities within the synagogue. Which means what? Which means he was important. Which means that most likely he was a respectable man, a figure of wealth, a a figure of social prominence among the Jews. He was Jewish. He was a man of spiritual authority and public authority. Yet in this account, you have this Jewish religious leader, almost a senior leader, bowing down and falling to his knees in desperation before a Galilean carpenter. And that says something about the reversal of social class. That says something about Jairus's faith. It, it, it tells you what Jairus believed about Jesus. So whatever he knew about Jesus, he had a certain perception. Now, why is this important? Well, one, a lot of people didn't know who Jesus was. The crowds did not know Jesus' true identity. His disciples are still trying to figure out, and now they have a clearer understanding that the man who they call rabbi is actually the son of God. Few people understood Jesus' identity, but what of the religious leaders? The religious leaders hated Jesus. The Jewish religious leaders wanted Jesus dead. And so here's one of their leaders who... If anyone was supposed to hate Jesus, he should have been the ringleader. But he comes falling at the feet of Christ, crying out in desperation. And he doesn't come in private. He comes in public where there's a crowd of Jewish people there. And he comes and unashamed of coming to Jesus for healing. And in contrast, there's another guy we know named Nick. And not Santa Claus. Right, but another Nick named Nicodemus. And in the Gospel of John, Nicodemus, he comes by night. And what do we know about Nicodemus? Nicodemus was also Jewish, and he was also a religious leader, but he was afraid. At least in that moment, he was afraid. What was he afraid of? Public perception. He was afraid. He didn't want to put his career on the line. He didn't want to bear public reproach and shame. He didn't want his co-workers and his religious colleagues to look down upon him or to criticize him or even to say, hey, you deserve to be stoned to death because you went to Jesus. So Nicodemus comes under the cover of night. Nicodemus went in secret because it would have been unbecoming of a Jewish leader to seek after Christ. But Jairus is completely different. And this is why when you look at all of the gospel accounts, there is no doubt about this man's faith. This man had initial faith. And so whatever he knew about Jesus, he believed that Jesus' person was, was something supernatural, something divine about Jesus, and he believed in Jesus' power. Now here's something funny. Notice in verse 23. What does it say in verse 23? It says that he came to Jesus because his daughter, you see what it says? It doesn't say his daughter was sick. It says that his daughter was a, was at the point of death. Is that what most of your translations say? Yeah, give me a nod. At the point of death. If someone's at the point of death, are they dead? Yeah. Right? I mean, think about it. If you say, hey, I'm at the point of death. 
I'm at the point of death. You're dead. You're dead. So why does Mark say point of death? It's just literary genius. It's just literary technique. Because it's pointing towards the, the fact that she's not really going to be dead, right? But Matthew. Now take your Bibles. Keep your bulletin or your finger in Matthew 5. Uh, I mean in Mark 5. And I want you to go to Matthew 9.18. Matthew 9.18. Matthew chapter 9, verse 18. And if you don't have a paper Bible, just don't even worry about it. Okay? Matthew 9, 18. Look at what Matthew says. Same account. But the reason I show you this is I want you to know what Jairus was asking for. And for a Jewish leader, this is amazing faith. Matthew 9, 18 says, While he was saying these things to them, Behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died. Come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. What kind of faith is that? That's amazing faith. He went to Jesus saying, My daughter is dead, and I'm coming to you because I believe that you could raise her from the dead. Now, Mark, you know, kind of takes you through the the story but you guys know me. I'm not a creative guy. I don't like story. I like get to the point. That makes me a weak preacher, a weak storyteller. But I like how Matthew says it. He just tells it how it is. He gives you the news report. She's dead. I'm coming for a resurrection. When you come to Jesus for salvation, are you not dead spiritually? And if you're spiritually dead, are you not practically going to be physically dead and in hell? So when you pray for someone who is not saved and you're praying for healing, are you really praying for the healing? You want more than the healing, right? You want physical healing, but if Jesus heals them physically but doesn't revive their soul, they're going to go to hell and they're going to die anyways. And when you pray for someone's salvation, are you not praying for spiritual resurrection? So this tells you about a foreshadow of the gospel, a foreshadow of what Jesus is going to do, a foreshadow of what resurrection points towards, and it tells you the heart of why missions exist. It's to raise dead souls. And this is what evangelism is all about. And this man knew that my daughter's dead. Jesus, will you raise her from the dead? And maybe he didn't understand New Testament theology. Maybe he didn't understand the full gospel yet because it wasn't proclaimed. The work wasn't even finished. Jesus didn't even die and rise from the dead yet. But at least he believed that this rabbi Jesus was more than just a rabbi because he believed that Jesus could raise his daughter from the dead. And that tells you about his faith. And so, yes, his faith is credited to him. Now, go back to Mark. And let's let Mark be the creative, like, storytelling kind of guy and bring you the suspense. And so look at verse 24. Okay, look what happens. Jesus went with him. So you're, at this point, you know, if you're Jairus, you're going to Jesus. You're like, Jesus, please, 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 please. My daughter's at the point of death. She's practically dead. Um, I know that. Will you come? Will you lay your hands on my daughter? I, I believe that you could heal her. I believe you could make her live. That's what I believe about you. And Jesus says, recognizing his faith, Jesus says, come, let's go. All right, so what are you thinking when you're Jairus? You're like, all right, my daughter's going to live. Jesus is doing something about it. I got Jesus' attention. I, I'm, 
I'm Jesus' customer right now. You know, we're, we're going. We're going, right? Now, what happens in verses 25 to 34, and I want you to write down the word interruption. Write down the word interruption. This is how you and I would view this. Okay? How would you feel if you were at Kaiser Permanente waiting for your medical appointment and somebody cuts in front of you? So you're, it's your turn to see the doctor and you're like, I'm going to go see the doctor. Or you're in the emergency room and they're like, okay, it's your turn. And all of a sudden some lady says, I've been bleeding for a long time. This is an interruption. It's completely rude from our perspective. It's completely out of place. Can you have compassion on this woman? Lady, wait your turn. Get in line. Get a number. Make an appointment. That's the kind of world we live in, don't we, beloved? I would have been mad at her. My daughter's dead. You're just bleeding. Honestly, if your child is dead and you want a resurrection versus some lady who's not dying, she's not going to die, she's bleeding, who gets priority? Now, that's possibly Jairus' perspective, but the text doesn't say that. But that's our human response. You see how the text is real? The text interacts with our emotions, doesn't it? The Word of God is living and active because the Word of God applies to us. This is why when you do your devotions, you've got to take your time going through it. Okay? So look at verse 24. Now let me read this to you, and I want you to see this not from the compassionate angle of Jesus, because Gary did such a good job preaching that already. I don't, want you see, I don't want you to see this from the angle of the woman, the lady. She's going to get healed, so Jesus got her back. Okay, I want you to see this from the angle of a parent who your child is in the emergency room and the doctor is interrupted. Now let's read verse 24. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Verse 25, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, but let me add, she was not dead, okay, and who had suffered much under many physicians. So she already got her chance and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd, touched his garment, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments. And verse 31, and his disciples said to him, you see the crowds pressing around you and you say who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. And the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to him, her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So Gary did such a good job talking about how Jesus was accessible, how Jesus was patient, how Jesus gave this woman his attention and said, you know, he cares more than just who touches him. He doesn't want to just have a drive-by healing, but he wants to give her attention to understand that she recognized it and all that. And so I'm not going to preach on that, but just imagine what the lesson Jesus was teaching Jairus. Okay. Point number two this morning. Point number two this morning is uh, Jesus was teaching Jairus. Jairus, trust in the sovereign plan of Christ. 
The right word is timing, but I wanted a bunch of P's. So plan, okay? Trust in the sovereign timing, the plan of Christ. Because when you're talking about God, just imagine Jairus is thinking, Jesus, it's too late. She's dead. Come on. She's at the point of death. Jesus, come on. But God exists outside of time. And Jesus operates on his own time. And there is no too late in the book of God. Right? I'm not talking about, you know, confession of sin before you die. Yes, there is a too late at some point, right? But when it comes to Jesus doing his work, there is no, Jesus missed the mark. There is no, Jesus, do you know what you're doing? Do you know what you're doing? Why are you giving your attention to this woman? Because I planned it. (laughs) That's why. Because my father has ordained her healing. That's why. Jairus, you need to wait. You need to understand that this is not an interruption. Beloved, when we pray to God and he doesn't deliver, and and instead we're like, God, when is it my turn? You know, we've been praying for this person and you delivered for them. I've been praying for a job and you provided for my friend. When is it my turn? Right, God, I've been praying for this. I went to you asking that you would save my parents and I just went to prayer meeting and somebody else's parents got saved. Lord, when is it my turn? When is my disease going to be healed? And Jesus said, well, I don't know. You know, I know, but you don't know what my plan is for you. What if Jesus' plan is not what we would imagine or think? And what if Jesus is saying, I got you, but it's not working according to your plan and your timing. It's according to God's sovereign timing, right? That God knows and he recognizes, and we cannot see his work ever in the lives of others as an interruption. But there's anxiety, right? There's anxiety on Jairus' part. But you know what's cool is that I combed this text and I could not find anywhere Jairus complaining. The the people complaining are, are, are the disciples. Jesus, what do you mean who touched you? Common sense, there's so many people around you. Everybody touched you. The disciples were probably the guys who were more task-oriented, right? Jesus, remember, remember where we're going. Let me remind you of what's on your calendar, Jairus' house. Jairus is more important, ruler of a synagogue, right? But Jesus will not be hurried. He cannot be rushed. And when it comes to evangelism and missions, it's the same thing. It's all on God's timing, right? But here's where we see point number three, trust in the sovereign purposes of Christ. So you have the person of Christ, the power of Christ, the plan of Christ, the purpose of Christ, the predestination of, no, I'm just kidding. Okay, but all P's, right? The premillennial return of Christ. <laughs> um, just giving you all my theology, right? But it's all P's, right? Trust in the sovereign purposes of Christ. And we see this starting in verse 35. That while he was speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to Jairus, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. So finally, Jairus' worst nightmare is confirmed. I, I knew she was at the point of death, death, which means, means she was practically dead, and now it's confirmed she's actually dead. Now verse 35, he gets the news, And I want you to think about this statement. Why trouble the teacher any further? Why is that statement 
something that shouldn't surprise us. Why is this statement common sense? If you're visiting someone in the hospital and they're almost at the point of death and, you know, what do you do? You're like either hospice or comfort care. You're like, why trouble paying for more expensive treatment, right? Why trouble getting another opinion? Why trouble another difficult medical procedure? You know, in our minds, you know why this makes sense? Because death, death, I can't pronounce right, but TH, death, is an end in and of itself. Being dead, dying is the end. That's it. Why trouble anybody? Person's dead. Forget it. Dead. D-E-A-D. Dead. Done. Finished. Move on. Person's dead. Can't do anything about it. Who's the only person where death is only a beginning? Jesus. And Jesus says, you need to die to yourself. Die with Christ to your sin spiritually and live unto him. You die physically and then you have life eternal. Only in the plan of God is death only a beginning. Only in the plan of God is deadness not a problem. But in everybody else's mind, why trouble the teacher? You know why you trouble the teacher? Because the sovereign ordained plan of God was to come and to raise the dead. Missions exist because worship doesn't. John Piper says, and what is worship? Worship is the resurrection of souls that were dead that all of a sudden are singing life everlasting. Missions exist to raise dead souls. The task of evangelism is the difficult task of asking God to save people, praying to God to save people, waiting upon him to perform a miracle to raise their souls, which only he can do. That's the implication for missions. It's very clear. Because the whole resurrection of the dead is meant to point towards Jesus' resurrection. But if Jesus simply resurrected people from the dead without eternal life, it'd be meaningless. Raise them back to life, they die again, and they end up in hell. That is not salvation. That's not the mission of Christ. The mission of Christ is to raise dead souls spiritually so that one day there be both physical and spiritual resurrection to its fullest. So it's not too late because the heart of Jesus' mission is to address the dead. Jesus came to raise the dead. This room is full of believers who were dead, but now we live. And we are going to die, but we're not really going to die because we're going to live forever with Jesus if you have him. Do you see the interplay of what Jesus is asking Jairus for? Uh, Jairus is saying, revive my daughter. But Jesus demands something of Jairus. Jesus is saying, okay, well then, you want resurrection, will you trust me? Is that not evangelism? Hey, you want to live forever? Do you want your sins forgiven? Do you want a new life outside of this one? Then repent of your sins and surrender to Christ and trust in Christ. Right? So Jesus is saying, trust me. And then Jairus says, well, how long? How long? Because my daughter is dead. How long? And Jesus is saying, do not fear. Only believe. Do you still trust me? Do you have patience? One pastor explained it this way. Patience is bearing up under difficult circumstances without giving up or giving into bitterness. Patience means working when gratification is delayed. 
It means taking what life offers, even if it means suffering, without lashing out, end quote. But how countercultural is this when we live in an instant gratification, instant healing, chia pet, well, some of you guys don't know what that is, you know, a chia pet for you millennials, you know, when, when I was little, there was this commercial where there's this plant and you just put some seeds and you pour water and instantly it's like chia, 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 and then this plant comes out. And that's just not how life works, right? We're just like, Jesus, you know, do, you know, do work in my life. And it's not overnight that way, right? But we're like in a microwave culture. And so, of course, bearing up under difficult circumstances, people begin to doubt God, giving up or giving into bitterness. You can imagine if you were Jairus becoming bitter at Jesus and becoming bitter at this woman who interrupted and say, lady, I'm bitter at you because my daughter's dead, right? And, and, but Jesus is working behind the scenes. Look at verse 37. So they get to Jairus's house. And starting in verse 37, Jesus allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. So who invented the big three? So I'm just making a sports analogy. It's Jesus, right? He had his big three, Peter, James, and John. And this teaches us about discipleship, that Jesus had, out of all the people who followed Jesus, he had his 12, he had his community group, or small group, whatever you call it. Then he had his three apprentices, his three leaders among the disciples. And so this is his big three, Peter, James, and John. And the reason why he wants them to go in there is he wants to teach them something. He wants them to see, and then their job is then to teach the other disciples, right, and to teach everybody else. And so he brings in his big three, verse 38. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion. People were weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And so obviously she's dead because they start laughing. Look at verse 40. And they laughed at Jesus, but he put them outside. I don't know how he did that, but it's pretty cool. He put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And look at the affection and the compassion of Jesus taking the daughter by the hand. He said to her, right? And this is Teletha Kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Verse 42, immediately, immediately, divine miracle, the girl got up and began walking. So she goes from dead to walking. This is the real walking dead, okay? And she went from dead to walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. They're amazed because this is a miracle. If she was just sleeping, they wouldn't have been amazed. The reason why they were amazed was because they knew she was dead. I mean, this is a, a high-ranking official of the synagogue. So they probably had the best medical attention that Israel could offer. And verse 43, he strictly charged them that no one should know about this. He told them to give her something to eat. Right? So Jesus did not forget about Jairus, not for a moment. He gets to Jairus' house. And there's a crowd there. This is common of Eastern culture and Jewish culture. And some of you in, in Eastern Asian cultures as well, where they hire all of these professional criers, wailers, and weeping. So you know that they're fake. Okay, because if your heart is broken because your daughter or your family member just died, you're not going to be able to go from <laughs> like just wailing to laughter, like <laughs> right? You're not going to be able to do that. But the reason why they're able to move from, from just wailing to mockery and laughter is because it's fake. Okay, it's fake. 
And the text says she was 12 years old. I want you to see something here that's, that's crazy. This girl's 12 years old. Now, for, for you and I, 12-year-olds are, are, is your 12-year-old an adult? Who's the parent of a 12-year-old? 12-year-old girl, adult? Yes? Yes? No? No. Right? No, not in our culture. Okay? Uh, you still have to sign your release form. Okay, for them. They are a minor. But in Judeo, uh, in Jewish culture back then, a 12-year-old girl uh, was the beginning of her womanhood. Soon after she could get married. Uh, and that's just how things were back then because, you know, puberty kicks in and she becomes a real woman. Um, and so put things into perspective. Her entire uh, young adult life is in front of her. She can get married. She could raise a family. Uh, she could. Uh, so you could see the heart of her father. But even though she's moving into adolescence and, uh, and adulthood and back in those days, to, in the eyes of her daddy, still my little girl. So he goes to Jesus. He's like, my little girl's dead. Parents, you can resonate with this. He goes to Jesus. My little girl's dead. My little girl is dead. You know, parents, your kids could be 25, 30 years old. Still your little girl? You know, still, you know, you listen to your country music songs. I loved her first. You know, all that stuff, right? From, you know, I listen to country. It's, it's like, you're, that's, that's your, that's your little girl. And Jesus, Jesus touches her and says, little girl, rise up. You're alive. I want you to see just the reason why I emphasize these things is when you're doing Bible reading planning, you're like, I got to get through chapter five. I got to get through chapter six. Got to get through chapter seven. You miss these things. But if you really dig deep into the text and meditate, you see how a simple story just connects with you at a real life level. And, and so just imagine the heart of her father and her mother and, and her siblings you know, as she comes to life and she starts walking. Get her something to eat. Why is that significant? Because if something's dead, if someone's dead, you're not cooking anything for them. So Jesus said, hey, you better get the, get the meal ready. Start cooking because she's, she's alive. And, and if she's alive, she needs nutrients. You see, you see the subtleness is like, it's like Jesus, like you guys are acting like she's dead, but she's just asleep. And if she was asleep, you'd have some food for her. Go get some food ready because she's alive. Let's celebrate. This is a party. This is something to rejoice in. Now look at verse 43. Jesus strictly told the family, don't tell anyone. But how can you contain something like this? You know, you know if I'm a daddy, I'm going to go around everywhere. Jesus healed my little girl. Jesus healed my little girl. My little girl's alive. She's going to get married. She's going to have a family. My little girl's alive because of Jesus. How could you contain it? So why does Jesus tell him, don't tell anyone? Remember what he tells the demoniac? This is a little confusing, right? So he tells the demoniac, go back to your hometown and tell everybody. Tell everybody. So we see this in verse 43. So how we understand this is there were times where Jesus commanded strict silence because he knew that spreading the news about him would only heighten the fanatic response of the crowds. He knew that people would not understand him. They would not understand. And so the Jewish leaders would get even angrier and tell the Romans, like, hey, look, this guy thinks he's a king. You know, 
People would continue to go to him just for healing and feeding, but not really to believe in him as Lord. But there's other times where Jesus said, hey, there's no Jewish people here in Decapolis, and nobody even knows about me, uh, and there's no Pharisees there or whatnot. There's no religious leaders. This is Gentile territory, so I need my message to begin to spread, so go tell everybody. Okay, so that's why. So sometimes Jesus said, it's not helpful for the premature gospel to go out. Jesus didn't die and resurrect yet. So people would just perceive anything about him. Other times he's like, hey, for the sake of missions, go tell. Okay, so that's how you understand Mark. Now, Pastor Tim Keller summarizes the lessons of today's passage very nicely. He says, when you go to Jesus for help, you get from him far more than you had in mind. So if, if you're like, God, will you heal me? Jesus says, I don't just want to heal you. I want to give you eternal life, man. I want to raise you from the dead. But when you go to Jesus for help, you also end up giving to him far more than you expected to give. Jesus, I didn't know I had to wait that long. I didn't know I had to have all these interruptions. Jairus came thinking he would have to trust Jesus enough to get home, hoping that somehow his child wouldn't die before he arrived. But Jesus demanded far more from him. And after Jairus' daughter had died, Jesus looked right into his eyes and said, quote, unquote, trust me. Now that was a test of faith far beyond anything Jairus anticipated. So that's a summary. It's too long to put on the screen. It's like I'm, I'm borrowing from Tim Keller. So just imagine that. And you know what the crazy thing is? Sometimes we pray for people's healing, and Jesus' answer is, I'm not going to heal this, them in this lifetime. You're praying for healing. I'm going to give you a resurrection. And if they're a believer, that resurrection is going to come after they die. And you know, sometimes you and I won't know why until we get to heaven. And so I want to just take a moment here because this is praying for a child who has died. Some of you have lost your child and you prayed and Jesus didn't perform the resurrection. And my exhortation to you is that God is completely sovereign. If, you're, if your child was a believer, your child is in heaven with Jesus, in a far better place, being cared for by someone who can take care of them far better than you can. And you have to trust that if you're a believer, you will see them again. And your child will come telling you everything and the reason why God had a plan for all things. And if your child was under the age of accountability, which means they were too young and they couldn't profess Christ, then you have to trust that that little baby, that little child is with Jesus in heaven. So we have to trust that God has his plan for all things. So we can relate to this passage that when we go to God for a miracle, we have to remember this. For those who have trusted in the resurrected Christ, death is nothing but sleep. That is the big idea of this morning's message. That for those who have trusted in Christ, death, dying, is nothing but sleep. So when you pray for God to heal, you have to trust God, you have to wait on Him, and you have to trust Him even if He does not heal in this lifetime. Now here's the implication for missions, and I've repeated this throughout, but let me just hit it home once again. 
asking for people to be saved is asking God to perform a divine, supernatural conversion miracle. Praying for missions is praying for God to resurrect dead souls and to bring them to spiritual life where one day they will also have a resurrected body. And the story of Jesus raising Jairus' daughter is meant to point towards his death and resurrection, which is the heart of the gospel message. The work of evangelism and missions is essentially this, praying for lost souls, bringing the gospel to them, the message of the resurrection to them, and waiting upon God to perform spiritual resurrection. So we ask, we wait, we trust. That's the heartbeat and the pattern of evangelism. We ask, we wait, we trust, because we can't convert. The Holy Spirit does. So we pray to God, which means we ask. We wait upon God in his timing, and we trust. That's the heart of this message, of this passage. That's the what Jesus wanted Jairus to learn. So you've asked, which reveals your faith. Now you, will you wait, which confirms your faith? And will you trust, which ultimately puts the cherry on top of your faith? And will you trust even when it's hard? Will you trust me? Do not fear, Jesus said to Jairus. Just only believe. And that's the heart of what missions and evangelism is all about. Asking, waiting, and trusting in the sovereign person and power of Christ. Trusting in the sovereign plan, the timing of Christ. And trusting in the supernatural purposes and sovereign purposes of Christ that he has more than we can ever imagine planned for us. And sometimes we can't just, just can't see it. Beloved, will you bow with me in a word of prayer? Father, we come before you. Many of us in here, the majority of us, Lord, sitting here because we've experienced spiritual resurrection in our souls. We pray, Lord, that through your word, you would continue to teach us to trust you as we pray for the sick, as we pray for unsaved family members who are sick, as we pray for unsaved lost ones, as we pray for unsaved people groups, as we pray for the nations to receive the resurrection of the souls, as we pray for the lost, as we pray for missionaries who do this work, as we pray for our short-term teams to go out and help with this work. Lord, we know that it's all up to your power and your plan. So, Lord, we surrender ourselves to you. Will you teach us each and every day what it means to follow you and to not fear, but only to believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.